he's referred to as the man in the back of the room and introduced as the voice of God. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, given Tony and Grammy award-winning celebrities direction, and lectured scads of students. But as he likes to point out, the event entertainment expert you don't know, you don't know, Anthony Bellata. And Bellatified. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Bolotified. This is episode 36. I'm Anthony Bolotta, and this is the one and only podcast about event entertainment and engagement, your behind-the-scenes backpass. What can I say? I'm here, as I am every week, with my one and only Bolotophile, Alex Apostolides. Hey! Alex. Hello, Mr. Anthony. How are you? Well, interesting. I'm okay. Um, I think I have developed something called burning mouth syndrome. I don't know if you know what that is, but uh, the inside no. of my mouth feels like it's burning. And apparently it uh, can come on from dry mouth. Uh, there are some primary or secondary causes. I just called my dentist today to see if I can get in. But um my the inside of my lips and my tongue are like on fire uh, and i have i don't think it has anything to do with the fact that i was in phoenix which was literally it felt like it was literally on fire um but uh that's how i'm doing it's a it's a bit of an odd sensation it hurts to eat spicy foods uh it literally feels like even cocoa in in chocolate literally makes my mouth feel like it's on fire. It's very odd. And uh, I knew nothing about it. Apparently, D'Angelo's mother suffers from this. And uh, there are no, uh, there, there's no uh, antidote to it. You can't get rid of it. It comes and goes. It may last a few weeks, a few days, a few years. It's one of those things. Oh, my. Very interesting. And is anything, I'm not playing doctor, but I mean, I have, but I'm not now. <laughs> is, is anything swollen? Because I've had that happen where all of a sudden everything will yeah. swell and it hurts to do anything. Yeah. Well, my lip, the inside of my lip was swelling and I kept biting it when I was chewing food. And so then it was swelling even more because I kept biting it and it just, yeah. So yes, the inside, the interior of my lip, if you will, is swollen really odd and the interesting thing was i was with the american dental hygienist association but yeah. i i didn't say a word because i i didn't know what it was what what it was while i was there and i you know i was concerned i didn't want people to think you know i had something that could be catchy so i said nothing but it was really kind of funny that i was there with them all and probably somebody could have helped me and i was just too damn embarrassed to say anything. Phoenix or being professional and not oh, your personal. Leaving um, the baggage at the door. You know, let's. I choose to view have it as that option. That's mm. what you've been doing. That's what I exactly. That's exactly what I was doing because those. It's not about me, right? It's about you. So, uh, in these, in, when I'm when I'm on a job, what I'm feeling doesn't matter. Uh, speaking of which, Phoenix, 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 Phoenix was easily 115, 117 degrees out. And uh, it was like 
definitely like being in an oven. It's the first time in my life I experienced feeling warmer when the breeze picked up. Yes. It actually, you know, makes you feel hotter. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, uh, very interesting. We were downtown, uh, the very first conference to go back to the convention center. And while we were there, they were lifting their mask mandates. So the first day I was in the convention center of Phoenix, I had to wear a mask. And then after that, I didn't. And the hotel, the Hyatt, we were in the Hyatt, that too was changing over while I was there with the relaxation of the mask mandate. But also, there were very few people in downtown Phoenix until the weekend because the Dodgers were playing the Diamondbacks. So there were a lot of people from LA who came over to watch the game. But until that point, it was dead in downtown Phoenix, literally. Literally, nobody was around. Uh, Very odd. Felt very odd. And I don't know if that was due to the heat, you know, because it was, it's hot in the summer in Phoenix, but this was an excessive heat wave. It's not normally 115 to 118 degrees. So it could be that people were just, you know, staying indoors. Maybe businesses didn't open for that reason. I wasn't, I didn't hear any of that on the local news. Uh, But then again, I was also in and out of local news. I wasn't, you know, there to watch it. But it was very, very interesting. It was great. They opened up for us. The conference, the American Dental Hygienist Association conference, was at about half capacity. They did something very interesting. And I I wonder now if it didn't hurt their live and in-person attendance, because they uh, advertised right off the bat from the get-go when they decided to go live, that they would have a virtual offering, which starts a week from today. So base, and they made that available. If people didn't want to come to Phoenix, it was already available when they put out the invitation for this meeting. So I, I wonder if that hurt their attendance a bit because they did give people that option right up front. And I wonder if a lot of people just didn't say, I'm just taking that option. I don't know what my employer is going to let me do. You know, this is the easiest thing to, it's just easier right now. Uh, Because again, they were about half capacity. Everyone who was there was so happy to be there. Yeah, I bet. So lovely. Uh, and, And they're already lovely people, but even more so this year, lots, lots of hugging, lots of touching, uh, lots of smiling and talking face to face. It, it was really, really beautiful. It felt great to be. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. I know you always love this event, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it always seems to induce a smile. So yeah. It's, it's I, nice. I do. And, and the other one is the American Dental Educators Association. And I love them just as much. You know, these are really terrific people. And they are the educators in the dental field. So the deans of colleges and, uh, you know, the the companies that actually train dental students, uh, whereas, you know, the hygienists are, of course, the hygienists and are a little less formal and, you know, ready to have a bit more fun. What was interesting is they give out every year, they give out an excellence in dental hygiene award. They give out two of them. 
and it's sponsored by Crest Oral-B. And last night, oh, excuse me, Saturday night, they gave out their first excellence in dental hygiene award to a male, to a man. Nice. Right? The first male hygienist to win an award, to win that award. Yeah, I thought that was great too. And he was very proud to say it. That's really awesome. I have to say, I don't think I have ever had a male hygienist. And it's nice to see that happening. Just like I love when I have a male nurse, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's nice to maybe see that the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the stereotypes around male hygienists and male nurses, maybe that's lifting and opening that field up to men more. Mm -hmm. I think also the importance of the role is growing as the connection between oral health and overall health care is coming together and, and the medical profession is realizing and understanding the importance of good oral health and how much that plays in just good overall health. Your mouth is the conduit to everything. And, it is. and the hygienist role is expanding because of that. And so there is this great sense of empowerment in the room. Uh, it, it almost sometimes feels like we're on the brink of a, of a new paradigm, you know, like something's about to happen because there, there really is, a, they are the backbone of a dental practice. And, and you know that if you go to the dentist, because normally when you go, you see the hygienist before you even see the dentist. Sometimes the dentist pops in and out. Sometimes he doesn't. And the hygienist is one who's really making you aware of the things in your mouth that could become a problem. And so they're really important and they're, they're, their roles are much more important than people have been giving them credit for. So it's great to see things changing in, the, in their favor, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, they're still employees. There are, I think there might be one or two cleaning clinics coming up in the country but for the most part you go to a hygienist who works for a dentist yes. you don't go somewhere else to have your teeth clean um, but I, I see that changing very interesting back to the conference uh, I found it also uh, very interesting that the trade show wasn't obviously wasn't at full capacity and was a bit scaled back as well in terms of the look, the vibe, the feel. Uh, I, I guess I expected more companies there, but I do think that some of the companies are, still have their moratoriums on travel in place. And so their reps are not traveling. That was interesting to me. Also, I wanted to share that we worked with a band called Instant Classics out of Phoenix, and they were terrific people. That's good to know. They played really well. I think the only thing that I would say uh, that I would ask them to do if it was one of our gigs is to be a little bit more, have a little bit more continuity and not so many breaks, you know. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to hear after a song, silence, and then those same three 
drumstick hits that lets everyone know you're coming into a song again. I mean, after a while, you're like, okay, they should just be moving into a song or they should find another way to go. It just, that's, that's a gripe that we have. Yep, it sure right? is. Uh, it just feels to me uh, like there, there's an unpreparedness, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's not necessarily that, I, you know, right? We know it's not that. Sometimes it's just the, the tempo, the pacing of the band and the band leader. And that's just something that, you know, the band leader has sort of been doing all along and doesn't see anything wrong with it. But, but there does, you do feel these enormous breaks in between the songs and that needs to change whether it's a mindset or prep prepared being prepared either way uh that was driving me nuts as i was waiting backstage that's one of the biggest things that i'm working with bringing on a new artist in fact i just had this conversation with somebody we're going to be working with um we had a long conversation and i brought that up and i said you know i don't know how you guys do this but he goes oh no 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 he goes it's seamless he goes mm -hmm. he said and he was he was very uh no, a a C D very very a a D -D about yeah, yeah. like no yeah. there's you know i said good i said because you know the client will notice if there's 15 30 seconds in between a song the client's going to notice so if there's not banter it needs to move seamlessly if you're bantering with the audience great if you're not please go from one a to b to c Good. I know. You know, and it is, I think, you, you know, you said it so well, you know, he's a type A personality. It is the detail that a type A person is going to think about that makes the performance better. Mm -hmm. What, what you got to do is, is sometimes think about the things that you sometimes that you never give thought to, you know, open up your minds and really think I, I don't know how it is that somebody will be so put off by that and somebody else won't even notice. But if you're a professional in the field, you should be doing, should be following best practices. Yes, that's right? a good way of saying it. I, just, I had to rephrase that. <laughs> and, a, and, and a best practice is if you're playing ambient music, you're playing ambient background music that should flow from one song into the other. It doesn't mean you have to do a medley. It just means that when one song ends, it shouldn't be 30 seconds a minute before the next one starts. It should feel continuous. And uh, we don't need those empty breaks. We right. don't. So there, there, I think at one point there was a school of thought that yes, you know, people just sort of need that sort of cal uh, palate cleanser, if you will, in between the songs. I don't think so. This well, is not a performance. No, and also um, our attention span, uh, this is you know one of the downfalls of technology, but our attention span isn't what it used to be. And so there has to constantly be something happening. Mm -hmm. Otherwise people lose it. They, they, they stop hearing it. Mm -hmm. So we've got to keep their attention at all times. Agreed. I, I agree. So hopefully this, this new artist will do well for us uh, and we won't have that problem. I think he will. I think he will too. Talking about artists, we have somebody with us today that we have known for a very, very long time. Uh, 
but have not seen or heard, at least I have not in a long time. So I'm excited. Ready? Yep. Well, I I love this particular artist. He's he's quite amazing. Um, he's been performing stand-up comedy for over 30 years. And he has shared the stage with just about everyone, like Jerry Seinfeld, Robin Williams, the Beach Boys, John Stewart. I mean, the list is endless. Um, he was also, I don't know if you know this, he was a comedy writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. Jeez. And uh, he's also a motivational and keynote speaker who turned a long, dark journey of the soul dealing with major depressive disorder into six head talks. He uses the healing power of humor to show attendees how to find the chuckles and change, the laughs and the losses and the punchlines in the pain. He believes where there's humor, there's hope and where there is laughter, there is life. And that gives me chills. So please welcome the wonderfully talented, brilliantly funny and beautiful soul that is Mr. Frank King. Hey, Frank King. Frank King. How are you doing, man? I haven't seen you in ages. I was telling everyone it's been a long time since I've seen your face, spoken to you. Decades. Yeah. Well, we've spoken in the, in the interim. I yeah. Do. Yeah. Uh, yeah you've but, uh, emailed a number of times, but yeah, don't think face to face as it were uh, yeah. for years. Yeah, it's been years. When did you leave San Diego? We left San Diego 2003, I think, four. Yeah, three, four, moved to Northern California to, just because there was so much traffic and we got a dog and there's no place in La Jolla to walk a dog. No. So even on, the beach, on a leash, they won't let you. Yeah. Um, but you're now, are you still in Northern California or did you move up to Washington? No, we had a severe, as they do now, fire danger. And my lovely wife got chased by a mountain lion. We were in the Sierras. Yeah. And oh so my God. Oh yeah, yeah, and she's a blonde, and she saw it. And she thought it was a golden retriever. Not, not a joke. That's what she thought. Oh, wow, that golden retriever looks just like a mountain lion. The dog, by the way, chased off the mountain lion, so that's why she's still here. Jeez. We moved to Whidbey Island, which is lovely. No mountain lions, no fire. Mm -hmm. Then Central Washington, and then in the last recession. When you know people stopped booking speakers, we lost everything in chapter seven. Right. We moved, we moved down to Eugene, Oregon, where my wife grew up. We live in the little house she grew up in. So, in Eugene, I've been to Eugene. We love the Northwest. Mm -hmm. I lived there for four years. That's where my daughter was born. And it just uh, twelve miles south of downtown Seattle, in the little township called Seahurst, Purian, and our little area was Seahurst. Okay, yeah, we are crazy about the Northwest, and and it was a great place to rebuild our lives, which we've done over the last ten years, eleven almost now. It's so, when you've had a few things happen to you along the way too, right? Some fun stuff. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let's see, well, I had my second aortic valve replacement in 2012. Had a heart attack in 2014. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just don't look at you as somebody who would have an issue with his heart. And that's very naive and ignorant, but I'm speaking to somebody who always seems to have been in good shape. Yeah, it's thin gent, you know, what, 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 what um, genetic? Like my, or? You know, it's like my um, mental health history. It's it's not 
lifestyle. This is my genetics. It's just uh, my mother had high cholesterol, like a deep fat fryer. And my dad had a bad heart valve, which I had inherited. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's, um, that's what's, uh, you guys see the. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, getting ready for my next bodybuilding contest. So on the outside, you wouldn't think heart problems? Come on. Right. You're crazy. <laughs> yeah, of course, the titanium twistage down the front of my chest is pretty much a giveaway. But uh, wow. Everyone looks in the gym. Dude, what happened? <laughs> you got some good stories now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lord, yes. And six TEDx talks since I talked to you last, probably. Yes. Yes. Tell us about those. I started in 2014 when I had to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny. I uh, got some help with that by from Judy Carter. We said, look, you need to be a speaker who's funny, not a funny speaker. So she helped me rebrand. And then she said, you know, the best way to rebrand, frankly, I could do a TEDx and, and show them you can do something serious. So I, at age 58, I came out on stage as depression suicidal. Nobody knew. My wife, my family, my friends, nobody had any idea wow. that I was dealing with that. And so, uh, and when my wife's getting ready to push play on the YouTube video, when it posted, I said, wait, hold on. About a half dozen things I need to tell you before you hit play. So, but, but it's become a career now. Wow. And you've been invited back to give five more TED Talks since then. Yes. Same subject? Mental health, but just a different aspect. Uh, my favorite, Anthony, was mental health and the orgasm treat your depression single-handedly. That is fair. <laughs> my only standing ovation. Really? <laughs> and all you said was the title. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the title, they did they said you don't even start audition. We love the title and the idea so much, you're on. Really? <laughs> so you should keep giving that in perpetuity. Well, I I, I it's, <laughs> it's it's my favorite. Um my favorite joke in the TEDx, Wendy hated it. My lovely wife hated it. So don't do it. I said, no, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to rock the room. Mm-hmm. I stopped in the middle. And as my mother would say, apropos of nothing, I said to the audience, do you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? And they're looking at me and I go, because nobody could spell. <laughs> and oh man, the place exploded. <laughs> oh, don't oh, be so pleased. <laughs> Well, I'm just really curious how your wife reacted when you explained to her what she was about to see. Well, you know, I was a little moody and she thought I was sort of carbohydrate sensitive because I'd eat some carbs and then an hour later I'd be kind of grubby. Mm-hmm. And that she just wrote it off to that. You know, have a glass of orange juice, which actually, if you have had carbs and it's an hour later and you're crashing, a glass of orange juice is a great idea. Um, you know, people with mental illness, good actors. So she didn't really have any idea. I mean, there's a reason I have a SAG card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually made the relationship better because now if I'm grumpy, she knows, I let her know up front, I'm cycling down. So she doesn't think if she sees me scowling, that has something to do with her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't feel like she's done something wrong. And she has a wicked sense of humor. One of my triggers is disappointing her. That'll send me into a decline. So if I do something stupid, and I, you know, occasionally do, and uh, I'll say to her, Wendy, are you mad at me? She'll go, no, honey, I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> we can laugh about it. You know, it's uh... good. 
That's awesome. How long have you been married to Wendy? Uh, July 4th, it'll be 34 years. Yeah, a long time. Yes, I wanted to get married on July 4th because it's Independence Day and I couldn't resist the irony. <laughs> and she wanted to get married on July 4th because she wanted to be guaranteed fireworks on her wedding night, she said. Nice, nice. I had my appendix out on July 4th. So it, for me, it will forever be Independence Day. <laughs> yeah. Independence Day. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm going to have to do something this July 4th so that I can attribute something monumental. Yeah, so you have something. <laughs> right. Yes. So, yeah, we've been, questions. I'm newly divorced. Anybody have any ideas? Let me know. Oh, Lord. I am sorry. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> so tell us, what is the difference between, for the audience, a speaker who's funny and a funny speaker? Well, Anthony, in all honesty, when I was in San Diego and I joined the National Speakers Association, mm -hmm. everybody there had content, takeaways, learning objectives. They were making a living and a difference. And I desperately wanted to do the same. Because, I, you know, when I sold insurance in the 80s, I saw all the great Zig Ziglar and Tra uh, Brian Tracy. And, you know, and I thought, man, I could do that if I could just figure out what I have to teach anybody. Right. So, I mean, I was militant and I became militant about it. My tagline was make a living, not a difference. But I was professionally jealous that everybody else was making a difference. So when um, the recession hit and the business dropped off and then things began to come back, meeting planners said, frankly, we love you. We can't pay that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You have to have a message. You have to some content. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to Judy and she has a book called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. She said, Frank, read the book and then circle back. So about halfway through the book, I realized, oh, dear Lord, I do have something to talk about. Because of my, my family history, there's more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And I, can, I came close enough to dying by suicide, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, literally. And I thought, you know, if I got some training in suicide prevention, then I, I can make a living and a difference. I could take my lived experience and the suicide prevention training and my humor. So I went from being a funny speaker who's doing, looking for a laugh every eight, nine seconds to a speaker where every two, three minutes, if you get a laugh, it's just a bonus for the audience. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, those first couple of years as a speaker, without that kind of feedback that you get when you're doing comedy, those are some long silences. I'm sure. I mean, they were paying attention. It wasn't like a comedy club where they're talking among themselves or heckling. They were, they were, they were listening, but I was used to that, you know, constant feedback. So... So that's, yeah, that's the difference. I'm simply now a speaker who is funny and suicide's a pretty dark subject. So if you can lighten it up a little bit and that's what usually gets me over the top, gets me the job among other speakers is the fact that I can add some organic, well-placed, tasteful humor. Because nobody wants to be driven into the ground by a speech like that, excuse yeah. the pun, but exactly. And, and the more levity and heart and sincerity authenticity you bring to that message the better off you are and the easier it is to receive it yeah and vulnerability i read brene brown's book on vulnerability but halfway through i thought oh my god that's my superpower mm -hmm. and i just I 
Big part? Oh, yeah, no, I know. I, I could, people kept telling me, reader, and I, how good could she be? And then about halfway through, I'm like, oh. And I was in Iowa last week for a behavioral health organization. And a woman said to me, I think it's a great compliment, where she goes, you made me laugh and you made me cry three times. Mm-hmm. So if you can, and I tell them the speakers that I work with for TEDx or training or whatever, if you can move them from pole to pole, from laughter to tears and back, uh, you know, you know the old saw. They may not remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Right. Exactly. Well, and the I know one of the things that you and I talked about, and is that you're giving permission to people to give voice yes. to what they're dealing with. And I think when you when you bring levity to it, and you make people people feel happy, and you make them comfortable in their skin, it's easier for them to give themselves permission to, to let their voice be heard. Yes, and I spoke to a meeting planner. I'd done a show in January of 2020. And it was a manufacturing plant. I did two shifts. It was a safety day and they wanted to do mental health. And then I talked to the meeting planner a couple months later. She goes, Frank, you have no idea. We had guys, men coming into the office, the nurse's office, they're on, on, on premises, revealing that they were struggling after after you left we had no idea you know i said you know what frank said about this this is what i'm living with and you know what's what's an eap to help me out you know the employee assistance program right yeah i think it's uh a a lot more widespread than people believe oh yeah 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 they focus on physical health which is important Mm -hmm. but i think mental health costs businesses in the u.s more than heart attack stroke and diabetes combined and we're all being driven into the ground. Excuse that expression again, but the pace under which we're all expected to deliver uh, is really pushing the limit. I, I almost feel like COVID was a necessity to just get us to slow down a little bit because we just, you know, we're not slowing down. We're just getting everything gets faster and faster and faster and faster. And so as the expectation gets faster it's it's wreaking havoc on us as humans well and I, I created a keynote shortly after the pandemic started called social distancing and staying sane don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends because i realized that my friends were mentally ill and high functioning we all have systems in place because we wake up in an uncertain world every day whether it's a pandemic or not and we got to figure out some way to get out of bed so i've i've been on podcast after podcast on keynote after keynote uh, teaching neurotypical people about self-care plans and gamification, heavy routine, and you know the things that mentally ill people do on a regular basis to function. And it's it's I mean it's it's like I split the atom for them uh, because you know if you've never been depressed, how would you know if that's why you can't get out of bed in the morning? I mean, if you've never been there, you know what's wrong with me? Right. This is, well, you know, so that brings to light a question um, that we have been asking our guests and talking about, and that is balance and work as we are dealing with such a fast-paced, pressured society. And so I was thinking about that with you, is, is coming from your standpoint, how you balance that, did it change with COVID or like you just said, you're used to dealing with it, but how do you make that balance dealing well, with a depressive disorder? I, I again, I have a self-care plan, five, five things, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication. 
And, you know, <laughs> my, my fifth TED talk, masturbation would be the other animal. <laughs> well, that's six. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no, it's the self, you know, it's a self-care plan. And I also recommend that you have something that you do that's completely side of what you do for a living. Uh, and that's why I do the bodybuilding because it's, it's, I could do the entire thing, the training and whatever and performing without ever opening my mouth. It's completely different than what I do for a living and I can achieve and I can see the, you know, the results. And so that's, and I do something, um, I lie in, I lie in bed in the morning. I wait, I wake up, I do a double shot of espresso. I close my eyes. I got my earplugs in my, you know, my, eye, my eye things on like this. And I lie there between a half an hour, an hour and a half doing absolutely nothing, just being and letting my brain wander where it will. Hmm. It's it's sort of a form of meditation. It's um, I got started doing it because people would say to me, Frank, I need a tagline. And so I said, let me sleep on. And I realized that was what was happening. I go to bed and then I wake up the next morning and it would occur to me. I have a friend who teaches soft skills, uh, emotional intelligence and some other communications. He goes, I need a tagline. I said, okay, Anthony, I'm going to bed. Three in the morning, I texted him. Anthony, his name is Anthony Metton. Anthony Metton, soft skills, concrete results. He goes, did you think that when you're asleep? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so that, that, that is part of my self-care plan. Mm. Lie there and just let my brain, you know, go where it will. And I mean, every now and then, you know, something you yeah, forgot to do yesterday bubbles up. Oh gosh, I gotta call Anthony. Um, but oftentimes right. it's ideas. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an idea for a Ted talk or, or, or something one of my clients will pop into my head, something that they've been trying, we've been trying to figure out for them. And then I can contact them and say, I think I figured it out. And um, so this is a, a, an exhilarating 45 minutes, not a sleepy kind of bemused 45 minutes, I'm assuming. It seems energetic, energizing this time that you're taking in the morning. You start with this Double espresso, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> is that to ensure you don't fall back into sleep, or uh, you know, you can almost feel the you know the engine cranking up. Um, right. I mean, I'm lying there still, but my brain, you can feel it, you know, beginning to go into gear, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's active. But um, I talked to a psychiatrist friend, and he said, Frank, the reason that you you're more creative at those moments is that. When you're lying in bed like that, in the dark, limiting your input, the, in that position, the blood is moving between the hemispheres of the brain more easily and quickly than when you're walking around the daytime. And that's why it's kind of like being in the shower. People say, I'm so creative in the shower. Well, the hot water's hitting on the back of the neck, forcing blood into your brain. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like that. It's, there's more blood flow and mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's an active state. It's, I'm not, I'm not consciously pushing my brain one way or another. I'm just sort of enjoying the ride. Uh, we have probably more green screens now than we know what to do with after last year. You know what? I've got a small one. I realized that I'd be in a hotel room and I couldn't use the background. So there's actually a, like a traveling one. Mm -hmm. you can set up in a hotel room so now i'm prepared for the you know to do wherever whenever so when i was in in the middle of last year i was hearing how architects were putting zoom rooms into new homes so i'm still i'd still like to see one but uh yeah how that was becoming a feature of the new home so it'd be interesting to see what that's like well and uh 
I, I discovered, I was not really a discovery, but I got a call and I was going to go to Salt Lake City for a 6 p.m. show on May 4th. And I got contacted by the um, South Palm Beach County Bar Association in Florida for a suicide prevention um, CLE. They got 90 minutes, they wanted 90 minutes of my suicide prevention for the attorneys to get CLE. Mm-hmm. I said, when? They said, May 4th lunch. I'm like, I know I can't get from A to B. Mm-hmm. They said, well, we can do it virtually. Yes. So it means speakers are no, not quite such slaves to the calendar and the airline schedules if the client yeah. is willing to, to do the Zoom. That's correct. So, I, oh man. Yeah, and you, yeah, it opened up beautifully. And I honestly, we talk about hybrid, 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 and you know, uh, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure that hybrid will ever really exist um, in the way that most people think it will. Two different audiences sharing the same experience. I think that what you're talking about is really where we're going with hybrid in the meeting, and that is bringing in uh, keynote speakers, VIPs, people who wouldn't ordinarily be accessible because they can't travel or it's not in their schedule. That is how I see hybrid coming to meetings more than we're going to have a a virtual audience that's going to share in this experience. It's just too hard to give everybody the same experience when you're formatted that way. So I'm glad that it's already working for you and that you're able to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, do two dates in one day. Yeah. Different coasts. Yeah, that's great. It's what it should. That's what we should be able to do with it. Yeah. And if I opportunity, if I'd known how well Zoom worked when I left Cambodia to fly back to the U.S. after my cruise. That was an interesting. Oh, Lord. So Uh, tell me about this, because I didn't read that. Oh, God. Sometime in your front of a computer, Anthony open a browser window and type in Frank King comedian quarantine and just look at the page after page after page time magazine, Newsweek, entertainment night, you know? Yeah. I was in, I, there were two ships in the Western Pacific in Singapore on the first February and the ship I was on Holland America and then the diamond princess and Holland America said they should, we shouldn't have sailed at all, but they said, look, if you've been on mainland China, you cannot get on the Holland America ship which worked out very well because nobody, none of the 2,500 passengers or crew ever got sick. The Diamond Princess, they didn't stop people who'd been on mainland China and they were parked off the coast of Japan with like 400 cases for weeks. The problem was the two ships were very close together geographically and people conflated the two. So when my contract was up and I had two gigs coming up the next week in the US, I flew myself home, but I made the mistake of speaking to the media in Seattle when I got there. Somebody tipped the media that I was coming back from that area of the world. Mm. And even though I told them over and over, I was never quarantined, our ship was never quarantined, every article begins with comedian jumps quarantine. Oh my. Oh yeah. And so the trolls came after me. We changed the home phone number. I shut down three social media accounts. I handled the death threats. And yeah, it was ugly. It was, it was, and the irony is, it was my last cruise line. I've been fired off a bunch of other ones, not any, you know, like drinking or whatever. It was just personality conflict with the cruise director. So I always joke that, I, you know, when I, when I leave Holland America, I want to go out to blaze of glory. <laughs> Did you? Oh my God. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, nobody in the, in the cruise industry will ever forget me. I'm telling you, it was, uh, it was, 
And, and it was harder on my wife because people realized she works as a cashier in a grocery store and people put the two, two of us together. And so she kept hearing over and over, are you married to that guy? So I finally bought the domain name thatguy.me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm that guy. <laughs> oh man, it was, yeah, it was, it was. But if I'd known then what I know now about Zoom, I would have just said to the people, look, I'm not going to get on a plane and fly home. Let's just Zoom. Right, right. And another irony is I had an evac policy because uh, I travel with these heart issues. I had a policy that said if I'd gotten sick with COVID, they would have put me on a private medically equipped jet and flown me right back to Eugene all by my little self and, and straight to the hospital. But because I was healthy, I didn't get that chance. Right, right. See, see what happens when you don't follow the protocol. I know, man. It was awful. But that's so, so I missed that story about Frank King that was in the New York Times, did you say? Uh, New York Times, New York Post, the uh, Daily Mail in London, the Independent in London, Lester Holt, E Inside Edition, E Entertainment Tonight. Were you interviewed at all? Yeah, oh yeah, they interviewed me. What I, what I what I learned about the media is, and at one point I stopped doing interviews unless they were live, because if you give them an interview, they got it. No matter what they say, they're going to do. It's it's on. I mean, it, you lose control of the narrative at that point. <laughs> and so I I said, look, I, if you want to do it live, I'll be happy to because I can control the narrative. But I'm not going to give you an interview because. You know, you're going to use the word quarantine. I know you are because that gets clicks and eyeballs. I understand. I've got a TED talk that I'm pitching called Going Viral, How the Coronavirus and the Cancel Culture Killed My Cruise Career. <laughs> the experience with the media yeah. and the fact that um, you didn't feel like you could be in control of your narrative. Uh, how long did that go on? And did it just dissipate after a while? You were no longer the story of the day. And are you still dealing with that locally? No, uh, it lasted about two weeks. Figure because I got off the boat on February. My contract was up on the fifteenth of February. Flew home on the sixteenth, and with two within two weeks, the pandemic had exploded. Right, and right. that pushed me off page one Google. Everybody forgot about me. Thank the Lord. I mean, I still got the occasional phone. One guy called me. He goes, you came back here to the county to kill everybody. I said, no, I've got to listen. You just made the VIP section. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to have a sense of humor. But you didn't have to deal with anybody physically threatening you. Oh, no. Guy called, your... called me up and said, I know where you work out. I know what time you work out. I'm coming to kill you. And I said, okay. I said, well, but you know, when you're making, when you're doing your calculations on this idea, keep this in mind. Number one, I've been trying to kill myself for four decades and I haven't been able to do it yet myself. <laughs> and two, um, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, uh, I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. So do you really want to take on a guy with nothing to lose? And he didn't show up. No, because he had everything to lose. Yes. He, and I, he, you know, I, I've crossed that barrier. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have, 10 rescue kitty cats. And we had a wildfire this past September and it came within a mile and a quarter of our house. And I was downtown 25 minutes away when it jumped the fire, you know, the fire break and came down the hill toward our house. And so when it popped up on my iPhone that it was a mile and a quarter away and moving fast, I got in the car and drove back to my neighborhood. I'm the only guy coming into the neighborhood in the middle of a wildfire. 
Because mm-hmm. I was not, I was either going to rescue the cats or die trying because I could not live with myself if I had a chance to get them out and I didn't. Yeah. And so I'm in the house shoving cats and carriers. I have a whole new respect for the term herding cats because I'd put one in, two would jump out. Yeah. And, and then we all made it out and the house didn't burn. But, but again, because I'm suicidal, friend of mine goes you could have died dude <laughs> i'm gonna try to do that for decades <laughs> you know and if you're gonna go you might as well do something heroic why right. do you come back to save the kikis <laughs> i love that about you i do i'm an animal lover so oh yeah i could not live myself if i thought i had a chance to get them out and i didn't take them. so you're getting these calls you already deal with this depressive disorder and you get these calls, right? How do you keep yourself from sinking when you're hearing these people spew negative, awful things at you? Or you know, does it matter? It doesn't matter. It, my pain was my, my, my wife who did nothing wrong. Right. I, mean, I did nothing wrong. The CDC cleared yeah. me in Cambodia, the CDC cleared me back in the States, but she literally did nothing wrong and she's getting blowback. And that that's what, uh, right. That's what crushed me was, I mean, I can handle it. I'm, you know, I, I, you know, that's I, just like hecklers, you know, I, I, I get it, <laughs> but yeah, it felt bad for her. Yeah. Yeah. It's an awful thing when people you love are, are, you know, uh, people are, have to respond to those kinds of things through no fault of their own, through no fault of yours, just through stupidity and ignorance. And yeah. And there was a lesson I, I learned Anthony in that, uh, there's a, there's a woman at the grocery store shop who I believe is trans, uh, formerly, you know, born a woman, uh, born a man and, and now presents or identifies a woman. And I've never seen her smile. And so I'm standing in a line, I'm looking at her and I'm feeling like a pariah, mm-hmm. an international pariah, but a pariah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at her thinking, you know, she probably deals with that sort of thing every day, every day. So when I got to her, she's looking down and I said, hey, gorgeous. And she looks up and broke into a, a, an amazing smile. The first one I'd ever seen on her face. And I just, I mean, my heart broke because I, I realized she faces that, you know, people forget about me in Cambodia and the, and the, and the virus, but she got every day at work, same thing. So I, I have a whole new respect for somebody who, who has to deal with that on a day in day out basis. So there was a life lesson in there for me. That's awesome. That is awesome. I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, but I, I'm glad that you are a better person, a bigger person, a more enlightened person because of it, which says a lot about who you are and how you dan- handle life's tragedies and challenges. Uh, obviously you can, you choose, right? Yeah, I, I, you choose. And, and, and I, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for the other. Uh, my mother and my father were both gay. Both really? Yes. Uh, 1940s, right there at the beginning of World War II in high school, crazy about one another, very funny. Both desperately wanted to have a family. So they got married. And, and people ask me, you know, why I don't kill myself because I have chronic suicidal ideation. I've crossed that barrier. I could do it anytime. 
And I said, well, that's a, that's a great question. I think if somebody is suicidal and you ask them, are you going to kill yourself? And they say, no, then ask them, tell me why not? Make them give voice to their reasoning. And my mother carried, carried it, got pregnant, carried it to term. It passed away almost immediately after birth. Oh my gosh. A year later, got pregnant again on purpose, carried it nine months, shortly after birth, passed away. Oh my Lord. Where she found the courage to try the third time and a fourth time with my little sister, I have no idea. So I tell people, that she was so brave and worked so hard to bring me here that I have to be at least as brave and work at least as hard to stay. So I have a, I have a soft spot in my heart for the gay community, obviously. Um, somebody, somebody said to me one time, I don't think lesbians um, are, are um, it's, it's, it's okay for them to, to birth and raise children. And I said, you better back up because now yeah it's um oh and i've got a ted talk i'm doing called gay in my dna because there is some science if you have two gay parents that there's a better than 50 50 chance you will be gay hmm. and and there's a reason that i i um i like tasteful decorations love uh judy garland and have an amazing ability to accessorize and, <laughs> and a wardrobe yeah, yeah. and <laughs> I, so i think i'm about one percent gay and and my, the trick for me, Anthony, is never to get 99% drunk. Because <laughs> <laughs> no explanation needed. Yeah. So, so yeah, anyway, did, there were life did, lessons in that. How did you come to know that your parents were gay? Well, you know, when you're a kid, you just accept things as they are. Um, looking, my wife said to me, Wendy said to me, years after my mom passed away, uh, she realized that I didn't realize. She said, you know, everybody that came to see your mom when she was dying of cancer in the hospital was gay. I go, yeah, those were friends. And she said, well, did she have any like special friends? Somebody she, you know, was particularly fond of? Oh, yes. Mrs. Ms. Cheek used to come over every week to uh, see my mom. And Wendy says, well, did she spend the night? She does. She lead me down the primrose path. And I said, oh, yeah, she spent the night every Wednesday. And Wendy goes, and where did she spend the night? Oh my gosh. And I'm like, in my man, man, my man, man. <laughs> it all fell into place. And, well, that, and my dad was a window dresser in her clothing store, extremely artistic, did pen and ink drawings for the newspaper for the clothing store. I mean, he did everything but leave me a crate of, you know, Judy Garland albums. I mean, it was so obvious once. And I, and I, I my lovely wife, Wendy's very wise. She goes, look, you got, your mom and friend is still alive. She's 84. You're going back to North Carolina. Have lunch with her and ask her. Just ask her. So I go back to have lunch. Audrey is her name. And I say, Audrey, look, everybody else but you, me, and my sister are gone. I just have one question. If you don't want to answer, I, that's fine. I said, was, was my mother gay? 84 years old. She goes, duh. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Wow. It makes it makes my folks that much more fascinating that yeah. they would work that hard against nature. God and, bless. Yeah, and to carry two to term and then have the courage to try again. I don't know how that happens. And, and they, did they stay married until? Well, the sad thing is, my mother had two siblings who got married and were both were miserable well into their eighties. 
And my dad died at 40 of the same heart condition that I had fixed. So the only happy couple of the three pair were the couple that were married and both gay. (laughs) I just, you know, it's heartbreaking because they were so happy together. They really love one another. When did you oh, I, mean, I understand that because really in the 80s and the first half of the 90s, pretty much everybody I dated and or was engaged to was gay. Well, and I met my lovely wife in San Diego in Hillcrest at a grocery store. And she was very muscular, wearing a ton of makeup, false eyelashes, and and she was gorgeous. And she said she'd go out with me. And so as the date for the date got closer, I got to thinking, worrying, maybe, you know, maybe she has outdoor, not indoor plumbing. So I told my roommate at the time, I said, look, I don't call you by midnight. Send the cops to this address because I'm playing the crime game and losing. <laughs> the crying game. <laughs> yeah. And at 11.45, I'm at Wendy's apartment. I said, can I borrow your phone? Old portable phone, you know? She goes, yeah. So I called my roommate right in front of her. And I said simply, it's a girl. <laughs> what did she do? She she has a wonderful sense of humor. And, and oh, I got to tell you, Alex, she is so sweet and so smart and so funny and such a good person. I would have married her if she had outdoor plumbing. It's just plumbing. Right. You, you find somebody that good, you know. Who cares? You have 43 years or 33 years, would you 30, say? 34 years. 34 years. 34. Yeah, that's, that's a long marriage. That's a beautiful marriage. And you're still happy. Yeah, you're still yeah. still in love. Yeah. And she has, she has believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. I Every now and then when things got bad, like during the last recession, I'd say, look, I got to get a real job. She goes, no, right. no, you are going to follow your gift. That's what you are going to do. And I, and I did. I, I wasn't sure I could do it, but. I did. And, you know, bankruptcy either blows apart a relationship or drives you closer together. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, it drove us closer together. Was this 2007, 8, 9, that time frame when you went through that? Yep. 2010, April, when I put the gun in my mouth because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. And in in suicide, there's something called burdensomeness. The world would be better off without me. Right. And the million dollars would have restored her financial. Right. Uh, And so... Um, fortunately, I knew because I sold insurance right out of college that my yeah. policy had a two-year suicide clause and I'd only had the policy 22 months so I couldn't kill myself. Right. That's why I'm still here. Because if it had been 24 months, I'd be gone. I have to ask you a very serious question about that. Do you ever think, and I don't want to such, I'm not, I hope I don't sound judgy, but do you ever think it's a bit cowardly to commit suicide does that thought ever cross your mind that it's the uh, easy way out yeah it, it's um two things people say one is didn't you th- didn't you think about the people you're going to leave behind you know mm-hmm. it's a selfish act but you right. know i was going to leave for a million dollars i truly believe she would be better off without me and with the money so from the inside looking out although it's irrational it's a selfless act Mm-hmm. I'm going to take my life and restore hers. And cowardly, I get that a lot. Um, the people that ask me, you know, or say it's it's a it's a cowardly act. Okay, here, and what I say is, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my nickel plated Ruger 38. I'm going to put it in your mouth. I'm going to pull the hammer back, 
you tell me how much. <laughs> yeah, and, and let's see how long it takes you to pee on yourself. Uh, so it does take, it does, it does, I mean, you're, it's cowardly in that you're leaving all the problems behind. For right. To deal with. I right. can see, again, from the outside looking in, it does appear, you know, you bailed out, you know, you couldn't take it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that burdensomeness is almost universal. The world would be better off without me. Mm. I'm sure if you ask Wendy, look, you can have the million bucks or he won't pull the trigger. Hopefully she would said, tell him not to pull the trigger. Uh, I would think that's what you would I say. I think so. Even as bad as it yeah. was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Money comes and goes. You know, even a million dollars goes. Yeah. You know, it's not forever. We lost everything we'd worked for and a million dollars in real estate, you know, it's our retirement. And so, um, you know, but but we rebuilt. It's, you know, fortunately, I was 52, I guess, maybe at the time. And so, you know, uh, if I'd been 62, it would have been a lot more difficult. But 52, you know, it was, it seemed doable. And both of us working together, you know, to. Uh, to make it happen. Yep. A partnership. Yeah. And our, for sure. Our dream is house paid off by her birthday when she turned 65. I'll already have Medicare. She'll get Medicare at that point. So she won't have job lock. She won't have to work for our health care. Right. And I wanted to come home and be right. my chief of staff because I could actually make more money if somebody was doing the, you know, the yeah. admin. Yeah. And helping to, you know, field calls and, you know, send out uh, information and book you. And yeah, absolutely. Especially now that the world is opening back up, you've got messages that are ready to share and we've, We've got two ways to get you in, either via the internet or you come live, you know? So there should be more opportunities. I wanna ask you though, a question. When you were making this change from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny, do you remember about when that was? Yes, I would have been early 2014, right before my first TED talk. Okay. Because I read- I read Judy's book and I made the decision to speak on suicide prevention. And, you know, I said, pick a lane. That was going to be my lane. I mean, if you call and ask me to do comedy, I'm happy to come, but I'm not going to market that. And I, then I had to rebrand, you know, and I said to Wendy, how am I going to rebrand? And she said, do a TED talk. And I said famously, what's a TED talk? <laughs> and that week I got an invitation to, to apply from one in Vancouver, British Columbia. So I applied and I got it. And that, Great. that, made the difference in terms of people taking me seriously mm-hmm. and and selecting picking a lane and then i picked five five ideal clients doctors veterinarians physicians construction and attorneys all have high rates of suicide top 10 all are working really hard to bring them down all of them can get continuing education from anything i do for them so it's, you know, pick a lane, suicide prevention, and then narrow your marketing to five-ish ideal clients. And that, I mean, I've, I've bumped my feet twice since then. Well, the CLE factor is big because now, as you said earlier, you can address a group of attorneys and they're going to get credit yep. for the fact that they've watched your 90-minute TED Talk. So uh on suicide prevention so that's it that is an absolute game changer for you yep veterinarians dentists osteopaths a woman typed in she goes frank i said how'd you find me she goes frank 
I typed on wham, I typed in suicide prevention speakers, osteopath, and you came up number one on Google. I go, well, wow. that's the benefit of focusing your marketing and, yes. your, and your SEO. Yes. If you go to suicide prevention speakers, plural dental, I have somewhere between five and eight organic listings on page one. I've got almost all the organic real estate on page one Google for dental. Wow. Because I work very hard you know, to, with the SEO and right. so forth to, um, you're very smart. You yeah. know, there are so many of us that don't understand the importance and the value of a niche market mm -hmm. like you are doing right now. We are casting huge nets, right? Trying to get anything and you're proving that that's not always the best way to go about it. Uh, there are plenty of opportunities out there. It's about finding the ones that are right for you. And by being very succinct in your marketing, they're finding you. Yes. And I tell my clients that I coach on TEDx and then coach as speakers. What we're trying to do is make it so you're no longer a commodity. So that when they come looking for a suicide prevention speaker, they're not just looking for any suicide prevention speaker. They're coming after you. Right. It's, a long, it's a long pull. And I've had it happen right. a couple of times, not many, but a couple of times they came looking specifically for me. So it's, you know, it takes a long time to get that kind of traction. It takes a long time. Yes. But a long you know, over, over time. And again, with my markets, um, you know, the, uh, the one I did in Iowa, I go, how'd you find me? She goes, Frank, on a whim, I typed in suicide prevention speakers, agriculture. You came up number one because yeah. that's one of the markets I'm after. Yeah. And I target it. And let's talk about the fact that there's no expiration date on this career path for you until you decide you're done because you don't have to be 25 and talk about, you can't be 25 and talk about suicide prevention. You have to be somebody who's got a little life, you know, stored in you, a few years on you to, to, to be credible. Yeah, and I tell comics who want to go into speaking, I go, here's the deal. The, the very things that will keep you from getting booked in comedy clubs in your 50s or 60s, that, that life experience, that gray hair, are the very things that will get you booked as a speaker. Because they want to hear, as Judy Carter would say, your messes and your stresses, then your successes. Give them the hero's journey first. And, and so that's, yeah. So yeah, the things that hold... And Anthony, I got to tell you, it's a little snarky, but every now and then when I'm staying in a really nice place like the Phoenician or something, a five-star, you know, slippers, bathrobe, when I go in the room, I'll leave my bags in the hall, open the door, I'll take a photograph, looking out you know, the room in the desert and post it and just put a little note on there. If you're my age and you're still doing comedy clubs, you might be doing it wrong. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. All right. This is a great question to ask now, since you were just being snarky. Yes. Uh, you talked about um, keeping your sense of uh, vulnerability state, and that's key. Uh, and it's the thing that I think most people have the hardest with, <laughs> being vulnerable on stage and other people. So I'm wondering how you access that in yourself. Well, I guess I'm fortunate in that my stories are, you know, there's emotion in many of my stories. And I, and I, you know, my clients will say to me, you know, if I tell that story, I'm going to cry. I said, well, we don't want you weeping, but I want you to tell that story to yourself. 
until you're at the point where when you tell it to yourself, you just get a catch in your throat and, and the audience knows you're on the verge of tears. And if you're a guy and you're willing to show that kind of vulnerability, because you know, guys don't tend to you know, evidence that kind of emotion. Like the woman in Iowa, you made me laugh once and cry three times. Right. Uh, so I think it's, it's all in tapping into those. I take myself back to the place where the story happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm reliving it in my mind as I'm telling. I must tell you, most of those stories, when I told them myself the first time, I wept out loud. I thought, I'm going to have to work on this because I'll, I'll just melt if I had to tell it tomorrow or you know, next time. Uh, so I, I, I make sure that I'm, you know, the audience knows that, that I'm on the verge of tears. And it's genuine. I mean, I'm like the story about my mom and being, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, I, I was on the verge of tears. I was telling you that yeah. story. Yeah, I noticed. And that, that see a man do that, something about that vulnerability in a man, especially, and then for women too, but especially men who don't normally, you know, big boys. Well, right? We're given more permission to yeah. show that vulnerability. Yeah. Yes. Which is why we, uh, two co-authors and I have three books on Amazon, fourth one coming out in September on men's mental health uh, because of toxic masculinity and the fact that men oh. don't aren't willing to reach out and how do you how do you deal with that and and i i don't i'm not complaining i'm not whining in in any way whatsoever but there are times that i do feel like the decline and the fall of the white man is really on us right now it's because nobody cares about you if you're a white man and if you've got issues and and nobody cares right yeah so it's good you've had it good all your life what do you want about right what are you whining about (laughs) nobody cares yeah (laughs) Uh, I still, though, I, I, I have to, I have to assume that part of the reason why you are able to bring that vulnerability up on stage is because you are an open person and you are empathetic and you do, you're perceptive and intuitive. And you, and you were ta- telling the story about the trans gal at the store, mm-hmm. you, it, you have to have that, those assets i'll call them to be able to reach into yourself and be vulnerable on stage you have to that's that's part of it i have to think because if you don't see other people if you're not aware of feelings emotions and and how you're impacting other people or what they feel if you can't put yourself aside ever then how do you access that right it's impossible yeah Brene brown said that Sympathy is feeling sorry for you, and empathy is feeling sorry with you. And she also said something I've said many times, but she said it more eloquently than I, about her mental illness. Uh, She said, I am so comfortable in my darkness that I can sit comfortably with you in yours. And then- Oh, no, go ahead, Frank. No, go ahead, I'm sorry. I I just, I, I see, why you're so wildly successful at this. And just in our emailing back and forth and reading, you know, I sent you some questions and you answered them very openly and honestly, and it compelled me to share something with you. Yep. And I thought to my, and that's, I signed off with, that's more information than you ever wanted to know about <laughs> me. And I don't know why I just told you all that. I couldn't stop myself though. I felt compelled oh. and safe to share something that was very personal with you. It's not something that I share very often. 
well, and I discovered when I was preparing for my first TEDx that even though one person dies in the US every nine minutes of suicide, hardly anybody talks about depression, thoughts of suicide. However, Alex, if you bring it up, uh, almost everyone has a story and they're willing to share, you know, because they're sharing it and they know they're not, they're not, there's not, not going to be a recrimination. Right. Mm -hmm. Safe space. Yeah. My clients, 95% of them, when I go in, they say this, we just brought you in here to start the conversation on suicide. Because once I open that door and give people permission to give voice, I, I, a friend of mine who works in the mental health space said, I feel like the permission fairy. <laughs> yes. I, I've been living depression all my life. <laughs> And people well, it, things that, you know, they've never told anybody. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, I think it's a human, it's a human uh, response, right? Somebody opens up to you and you feel safe to share. Yes. And so you're starting the conversation. You're taking the initiative to open up, which is giving people all of that freedom to do so themselves. It's interesting how that happens, isn't it? It's a phenomenon, really. Yeah, I've got a client who's working on getting a TEDx. She's a dentist. She bought a practice, didn't realize how bad the practice was, you know, financially when she bought yeah. it. She, she built it into a monster. And then a recession and a lawsuit from a couple of employees, it crashed and burned. And because she couldn't bear to admit to anyone that she'd failed, she found herself in her basement standing on a stool with a noose around her neck. And, and fortunately, her cell phone rang. It was a patient who needed her. So she took the noose off her neck and stepped down off the stool and back into her life. And, and that's the story she's going to tell at the TEDx. She hadn't ever told anybody that story until we started talking. And then she, at that point, she decided that was the story she needed to tell at the TEDx because dentists have such a high rate of suicide. And I said, and here's how we're going to handle this, because I think every TEDx should have some dramatic, a dramatic moment. We're going to take that stool and we're going to set it off far enough away from you on the stage that people know it's not for water. But we're not, you're not going to address that stool at all until you walk over, step up on it, and mime as if you are about to hang yourself. And then from backstage, the phone starts to ring, that classic iPhone ring. And we're going to let it go three, four times until the people in the audience are inside their head going, answered the phone. Right. And then she picks it up. Hello. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll be right. I'll meet me at the office and steps back into her life. But, but she had no intention of ever telling anybody that story, much less doing it on stage at a TEDx. Right. So Going through the motions again, acting it out. Yep. It takes a lot of courage to be able to put your shame behind that action yeah Thank you and, and move forward to help others renee brown you she began speaking on shame mm -hmm. before she was renee brown mm -hmm. a friend of mine was worked at a speakers bureau and she goes frank do you know how difficult it was back then to book a speaker on the topic of shame of shame <laughs> i got, there was no way i mean i never yeah. I, I never got her booking and then she did the tedx million views ted and became Brene Brown, but yeah, it, it was uh, right. Yeah, it's it's it almost has to happen that way in in our market because our corporate clients, our association clients, they're not ready 
to introduce those topics. They're only ready to respond to them when it becomes necessary. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience. So, uh, so the TED Talk helped to open it up as a conversation, making companies a bit more willing to uh, partake, engage. Yes. Uh, it, we're always, you know, in our market, we're always reactive, responsive. Very rarely do we get to introduce things to our clients. They're, they're and anything, right? Yeah. Uh, and anything they they want what they know, or they want what people are talking about, or they want what's trendy, or you know. Uh, so good that you have TED Talks to get this out there, and then to be able to have a career because it's catching on and people are starting to have conversations. I used to say, nobody talks about death. Yeah, true. <laughs> nobody did. Never. I finally saw a, a program, I think it was Netflix or Hulu, on surviving death. Yes. That, and that was the series. Great series. Right? But they, but it had to be called surviving death. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, so thank you for having the hard conversations. And I'm sure you do it in a way that makes people perk up and listen and gives them food for thought when they go home in their own lives, because obviously that's what you want to do too. You don't want to be the one that's forgotten. You want to be the one that stays with them and, you know, they come back to something you said or did, or, you know, well, to you. I put my, I tell the audience, look, if you're suicidal, call the suicide prevention lifeline or text the text line, which is 741741. Uh, if you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person and the next slide is my cell number. I said, because I'm not gonna judge, you don't have to explain anything. I'm just gonna help you wade through whatever BS you're wading through. Right. And about once every two weeks, somebody will call about themselves, about a loved one, looking resources. So uh, it's, you know, it's, a young kid called me he goes i can't believe this is your real cell number i go dude how bad would the karma be right say, if you're feeling like you want to commit suicide call this number i won't be there yeah I call said, it's just psych. yeah right. <laughs> i said to the kid i'll make it worse for you hold please and then i said now i'll make it even worse because i'm a comedian the on hold music is another one bites dust <laughs> 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 and that's the story I tell in my keynote. People ask, where's the humor? And I go, well, it's not jokes. It's funny, personal anecdotes. Right. And there's a rule in comedy. You can make fun of any group to which you belong. belong. Mm -hmm. If I were neurotypical, I'd be crucified for, for the, way, the way I covered death, dying, suicide, morbidity, mortality. But because, you know, I'm, I'm living with two mental illnesses. I, you know, I'm a card carrying member. So. So have at it. Yep. It's, it, so I have at it. I have permission to do those things. Right. So are you finding uh, one last question because I'm being uh, given the signal it's time to wrap, <laughs> but I do have another question. Are you finding more opportunities coming your way? more recently now that the world is opening up again or has there been really no change it's been steady talk to us about what's what's on the horizon well may was my best month since march of 2020 great uh march 3rd i got a panicked phone call from a speakers bureau 
They said, Frank, we cannot find anybody to fly into Florida, a state with no mask mandate, in the middle right. of a pandemic to speak. We have one slot left. We can't find anybody. Would you go to Florida in, in the middle of a pandemic with no mask mandate? I said, dude, I'm suicidal. What do I care? So I got the gig. And then when I got there, that was my opening bit. You guys probably wondering how I got here. Well, let me tell you exactly how I got it. I'm the only one willing to fly into Florida, you know, because I'm suicidal. Uh, so Where no, in Florida? Where in Florida was that? Uh, Marco Island. Oh, interesting. And I had an engagement, have an engagement on the 28th of, I'm sorry, 24th of September was going to be virtual in um, Tehama County, Tehama County, California, Redlands, that area. Uh huh. Uh, and it was going to be virtual. And they called me and they said, would you be willing to do it live? And what's your fee for live? Well, they opened the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was 5,000, you know, no travel because I was going to be doing my living room. I said, well, my fee for live is 7,500 plus travel. And they didn't blank. So the fact that they're, you know, shifting these from virtual to live tells me that, you know, the world is slowly but surely yes. opening back up. And yes, I was telling Alex before we brought you on that, I, you know, it's in Phoenix this weekend, we're working for the American Dental Hygienist Association. And it was our first conference, their, their first conference in Phoenix. Uh, so I'm sure we're going to see more and more of this. And while I was in Phoenix for the first time, I saw uh, leisure commercials for the leisure market for San Diego. So we're open and they're again advertising for people to come and visit. Uh, masks in the middle of my stay in Phoenix, the mask mandate was was uh, retired while I was there. So we're starting to see it come back slowly. And I, you know, the 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 the, the conversation now is, Will people be ready to come back? Will people feel, you know, comfortable coming back? And the comfortable people are going to feel they're going to come back. You know, not everybody's going to come back, but there'll be a, a a very large amount of people who will. Yeah, Disney Cruises advertising again. Norwegians advertising again. Um, did you say it was a dental group? Yes, it's a dental group. I do two dental groups a year. Okay, now Anthony, when we hang up. <laughs> go to suicide prevention speakers plural dental and see just how many organic listings I'm, I'm going to page one I mean that's the you said something about you know businesses big businesses don't often um, get ahead of the curve you know, they wait for something to happen and then they book the speaker uh, Seattle study club which is a is a dental there's study clubs all over the country for where dentists get together once a month and talk dental they realized they had a problem and they came looking for me. That's one of the first times that had happened. They, they tracked me down. They go, Frank, we've never had anybody speak on suicide prevention as a dental practice health and safety issue. Would you come up and showcase? And I did a 15 minute showcase and I put a countdown clock on the screen instead of PowerPoint slides. And I said, every, every uh, one person in my tribe dies of suicide in the U.S. every 15 minutes, and I started the countdown clock. So as I'm talking, they're watching me, they're watching that clock. And at the end, about 30 seconds to go, I said, the good news is you can make a difference, you can save a life, and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here in that starting conversation before their time runs out. And the tech hit the clock and stopped it at seven seconds, and they went nuts. The, the speaker bureau person said, Frank, I have never seen anybody 
make them laugh, make them cry, and they get a standing ovation, a 15 minute showcase. But that's how emotional it was. And that's how they, they are aware how bad the problem is in their industry. So I, uh, I mean, the minute you brought that up initially, I, I had it in my head that I would be talking to both of my clients uh, about you. Uh, one of them is the, uh, the American Dental Education Association. So they're all educators. Uh, and I can see there's a fit there for sure. I was just there with the hygienist and that we heard from a, an ex basketball player yesterday named Lisa Leslie. And you mentioned a few things about your own uh, presentational style that I recognized in her. I, I thought she was amazing. And I see a lot of keynote speakers in my work and very few of them are really amazing. They, they all have great presentations and they say a lot, but there's, <laughs> there's, there isn't a connection always forged. And Lisa Leslie was one of those speakers yesterday who showed some vulnerability mm -hmm. as you spoke about and led us in to who she is. And the response was magnificent. And I'm still thinking about her. Good sign. And I'm not even, right, right. And I'm not even the target audience, right? I'm just there peripheral, peripheral, but I'm still thinking about her. So, uh, you know, all the things that you're talking about and how you connect, those are right on, they're spot on because a keynote is about inspiring, motivating, enlightening, um, showing people another way, introducing a topic. And to do that, you have to be accessible, mm -hmm. right? And I don't see that accessibility in everybody on stage. Well, because I have chronic suicidal ideation, every time I've spoken since 2014, there's been at least one person in the audience who has that. And they don't know it has a name. Uh, I tell a story that it's a solution for me and my tribe for problems large and small. And when I say small, when my car broke down three years ago, I had three thoughts on bid. Get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. So, and they just think there's some kind of freak. And a young woman came up to me after a college presentation, said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but it made me weep. How did it make you weep? I said, well, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, or just kill yourself? because I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I just thought of some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not alone and I wept. I just, it's like being George Bailey. I've been showing what these people's lives would be like if I weren't there just to reassure them that they're not alone and it's a thing. So yeah, that's, that's the, that's the th and extremely therapeutic for me. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it because we want you around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we ain't got no time for that. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, well, I am probably the most positive suicidal person you'll ever meet, Anthony. Yeah. So <laughs> I love it. That's why we want you here. You ready to play a little game with us? Absolutely. All right. So we call it this or that. I'll pose 10 questions. You tell me which one you like, this one or that one. I'll give you a, an option of one or two, okay. 10 questions. You can say neither once and both oh. once. Otherwise, you have to give me a this or a that, all right? All right. Number one, red apples or granny apples? Oh, red apples. Red apples. Tulips or rhododendrons? Rhododendrons, roadies. 
The Comedy Store or Caroline's on Broadway? Comedy Store. Philly cheesesteak or crawfish bowl? Oh, no, Philly cheesesteak. Yeah. San Diego or Seattle? Seattle. How dare you? You'll yeah. be able to pay for that. Aisle or window? Agreement too. Window. So nobody has to crawl over me to tinkle. Window. So nobody crawls over you to tinkle. Yep. What, what about when you have to tinkle? Then it's a pain. Yes. Right, I wear okay. depends. Do you really? <laughs> I've thought about it. Seinfeld or Leno? Uh, Seinfeld. Really? We love Jay Leno in our office. Uh, I wrote for him for 20 years. I know. We know. He, we just, we just love him. He's, he's a spot on kind of guy. Um, from Gilligan's Island, Ginger yeah. or Marianne? <laughs> what, wait, you want to wait for the question? No, yeah. I, I like my, like the country song says, I like my women on the trash. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, feature or headliner? Uh, feature because you're not responsible to open. You're not responsible to close. It's the best spot in the show. That's exactly what D'Angelo thought you would say. Yeah, well, last, yeah, if I got a feature and supported myself, I'd never do anything else. All right, last, and I apologize in advance for this one. M&M's or the barrel of your gun? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get my body fat down and the barrel would be a lot lower in fat than, uh, and, you know, the brain weighs. Uh, I love <laughs> M&M's so much. I'm on the keto diet. I love M&M's so much. I, I was in line on the TSA and there was a no, you know, another conveyor belt. And there was a purse open and there was a yellow package in there. And I could, I, it looked like the tail end of a peanut M&M package. It's been so long since I've had cards. I'm staring at it and drooling practically. So. <laughs> you can't have a bag of M&M's. You're that, you're that dedicated. Yeah, I have one meal a day, usually at the 22 to 24 hour mark. And then it's all, it's all protein and fat. I'm down to 9% body fat. I'm trying to get down to four for the contest. Wow. And what, what do you weigh? Uh, I weigh about 148 now. And you're how tall? 6'1". Wow. In the master's class over 60, which I'm 64, it's not about size. It's about proportion, muscularity, and vascular. But, but, and body mass. Yes. No. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, you, have to, you have to pose in a certain way, kind of pull everything in so you don't look bony. Right. But, uh, but with, you know, here's my dream, Anthony. Is my nickname in the in the in the master's bodybuilding world is Frankie Pipes. You know, I want the, you know, the yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I love it. I love it. We just, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, it's just, it's just, I was terrified. I I, I opened for Andy Travis twice, two nights, five thousand people each night at Amphitheater in Michigan, never broke a sweat. Standing in my underwear on stage in front of 300 people posing and doing my little routine, I was terrified. Uh, it was just. God bless. How'd you get through that? Well, it's only 60 seconds. And I chose a song, Anthony, that nobody else would pick. Everybody else had rock anthems. Mm -hmm. And I chose Dion the Belmont's The Wanderer. And the first eight beats, there's no lyrics. So I came out swinging my hips and snapping my fingers. 
and I, I, uh, I, you know, hammed it up. I was, you know, I, I, I loved it. Swivel hips. The the audience went nuts mm-hmm. because it was because so, everybody was so serious. Right, right, right. Do the opposite. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to have him back because um, I want to pick his brain about some of the people that he's worked with, especially uh, one of my very favorites, Dana Carvey. Oh, yeah. Um, so someday I want to have this conversation. Yeah, Dana and had a hard valve, hard valve job and they screwed it yeah. up the first time, had to do it again. Yes, he had some, he had a tough time. Yeah, he could have died in between those surgeries. I mean, it was that bad. Uh, he's one That's of my, just... he's one of my favorite comedians. I just love him. Yep. And I worked with him at the improv in San Diego back in the day in PB. Wow. That's where I saw him. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> opened up for Ellen there and, and Paula Poundstone and Dana Carvey and Dennis Miller came down to his first set when he came out from Pennsylvania, wasn't getting enough stage time in LA. So his manager sent him down to the improv in San Diego to let him do 30 minutes. And I mean, it was, it may have been the best 30 minutes I've ever seen because it was all his A material. It was just amazing. Poor Kevin Pollack had to try to follow him. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it was ugly. These are the stories before people, uh, before people hit it big. Yeah, pretty much. I worked with everybody who's now, you know, Rosie and Foxworthy and Ron White and Miller and Kevin James. Back in the day when they're just comics. Just comics. Yeah. Yeah. This was before Dana Carvey made it big and he made fun of me. I was sitting right there in the front row and he made fun of me. And then afterwards, and I, I shared this with you when I was leaving, because the whole purpose they were making fun of me is that I was the dumpy, not the dump or of a recent <laughs> relationship. And uh, so as I was leaving the, uh, the comedy store, I said to him, you know, thanks for making me laugh. I really needed it. And it wasn't, I wasn't saying it just to say it. I really meant it it had been the first time i had smiled in probably three to five months wow and he looked at me and he said if i were single i'd ask you out (laughs) and i knew that he was saying it to be kind but nonetheless Nonetheless. i walked out of there feeling good well and you're still attractive alex i want you to know that if i were single (laughs) if i were straight (laughs) yeah thank you Thank you. Anthony, oh, now, now Anthony, I'm going to go through the rest of my day happy. Yeah, and Anthony, if I were gay. Uh, <laughs> Frank, I, I wish you were. <laughs> I'm, you know. If you were. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always. Yeah. My yeah. pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure Thank seeing you. you. Take All care. Right. Say hi to Wendy. I'll do it. Wow, that was great. That was great. So uh, he's got a lot going on, and he is bringing this rather uh, taboo subject to the conversation and having success. Good for him. And I really do hope we get to work with him in the coming few years. I hope so, too. Because he's always a delight when I do call him for what, you know, an event here and there, if we're going to propose him, he's always a delight to uh, speak with and communicate with and, and very responsive and very kind and generous. Yeah, it's great to work with people like that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lesson in that. Uh, and that is people work with people they like. Yep. So unless you have something that uh, nobody else has, 
be nice. Work on being nice and being liked nice. and being uh, agreeable. And, uh, and it takes work, you know, it takes work to do that. Not because you're mean or, uh, you know, you don't have a nice bone in your body because, you know, sometimes it's about understanding where people are coming from, taking a moment to try to understand where they're coming from before responding. Mm-hmm. Just even that will help. Right? Yeah. Take a little pause. A little pause. Pause for the reaction. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it for us today. Uh, we have another podcast next week, and I know we have a very special guest coming on, so I'm looking forward to, to speaking with Patty Roscoe. Uh, until then... Make it great days. Summer's here. Masks are off. Let's do this. Let's do it. Yep. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us five stars. We're worth every, every one of them, I promise. The fact that I have to say that probably means we're not. But no, I said we it are. anyway. No, we are. Okay, thank you. I'm confirming it. We are. Yeah, because if you say it, then it must be true because you're not one to gaslight. So thank you. Um, Thank you very much. So please give us those five stars. And if you'd like to leave a comment or a question, just go to blotta.com, look for the podcast tab, and there'll be a place for you to leave your question or comment for us to share on the air. Until next time, make it an eventful day. Bye-bye. Bye. on my I did it again I forgot what I was going to say yes my mother would say if you're not going to pay attention to Anthony I'm not (laughs) right exactly and nobody does for that reason